Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 45 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're pleased to bring you our 2019 outlook on all the themes that we're focused on as a firm, including the future of the direct-to-consumer media landscape, the choppy market cycle, and some exciting new areas of focus, including space, live events, 5G, and more. Leslie Mallon, our public markets and IPO expert, who also writes our weekly newsletter, sits down with Lion Tree founder and CEO Arie Borkov to discuss the trends that will shape the marketplace over the coming year. If you don't already receive our newsletter and would like to be added, please reach out to us at kindredcast at liontree.com. Enjoy this conversation and wishing you all a prosperous and healthy 2019. So Ari, it seems like just yesterday we recorded the podcast on 2018 themes, and now we're at the start of 2019. Time flies. Yeah. There's a lot packed into your hot off the press year-end letter, so I wanted to jump right in, if that's okay. Sure. I mean, in the beginning of 2018, we barely got started on podcasting, so even the concept of a podcast was a new thing for the firm, for Liontree, and to some extent for the industry. And now you're actually on the hot seat, as opposed to all of our other guests <laughs> who are usually on the hot seat. <laughs> People don't know, by the way, how uh, tough Leslie is. You know, I think everyone uh, sees the emails full of information and perspectives. But when you speak to Leslie, uh, she does not suffer fools. She is discerning. I guess I'm putting myself in a bad spot here because I'm sure it won't be let off the hook. But she's very fundamentally oriented. Not a lot of spin Leslie holds you accountable to your words and your views. So I'm a little bit nervous myself, actually. We'll have to see how tough I am on you today. So maybe I need to be tougher. First of all, the title for your letter this year was Work in Progress. So I wanted to start with some perspectives and thoughts about Lion Tree and its evolution as a firm. There were some interesting concepts that you highlighted about how the firm differentiates itself, one of those being scaled intimacy. Can you talk about what that is and how you believe this sets the firm apart? Sure. It's an important term that we coined or I was thinking through in creating the letter because, you know, at every turn in building a company that gets bigger every year and hopefully grows every year and hopefully makes an impact every year, it all starts and ends and in the middle is about a relationship. The relationship can be an old relationship, a new relationship, a developing relationship. And that relationship at that moment on a phone call or in a discussion or in a meeting has real essence to what we do every single day. And frankly, if you only had that one conversation, you'd feel pretty satisfied because it's such a rewarding and fulfilling relationship. So the question is, how do you do that at scale? How do you do that as the firm grows? How do you preserve that? as the firm grows? How do you build that into the firm's culture? And that is arguably the most important thing that we're doing here and that I'm doing as a business builder is to try to create not a business for business sake, but a business that adheres to the foundational principles of what we were about, what we are about, what we should always be about. And that, I think, is something that we constantly try to get right. I think we fail at it sometimes. I personally fail at it sometimes because there's always a lot going on. But I wrote that in the letter because I wanted to stress the importance of it. 
And to be able to have those personal, deep relationships, which I think an appropriate advisory business and a financial services business should have at scale requires you to do certain things to make that happen. It doesn't happen on its own. So that's how we structure the systems of the firm, how we structure the different collaborative groups that we do in banking and how do we put the, the client first or the relationship first. And we make mistakes. And in 2018, I personally have made some mistakes in that area and I've had to go through my own corrections. And so you learn from those things and then you want to impart the learnings into the firm structure. Even this, this podcast is a scale intimacy product, meaning this podcast, Kindercast now is in 94 countries around the world. And I'm sitting here talking to you with a relationship that is one-on-one and we're having a conversation in this conference room that feels great and it's rewarding and it's enriching and it's powerful in a lot of ways, but people can hear this all over the world and without us being physically present there. So that's scale, but preserving the intimacy. And I want that to come across in all aspects of the firm, whether we're doing deals or creating products or making investments, capital scales well, but is less intimate. Right, capital works when people are sleeping, in terms of investment dollars, but doesn't have that same intimacy as a relationship business. So, how do you combine those things, where it's really an experience, not just a business? Aside from that scale, strategically, what pivots do you foresee with Lion Tree regarding its direction as a company? M and A Advisory is obviously a cornerstone of the firm, but what other business areas do you expect to ramp more significantly next year? Well, I remember you asking me this question a year ago, and I did say that I want more of our core business to be the forefront of the firm, meaning the advisory business, even while we have other products, including your product and the institutional investor business, all of which are important. I say the same thing again today because the advisory business is such a special business. You earn your right to be there every single day to advise companies and individuals about how they should allocate capital, how they should build value, how they should strategically realign themselves and the industry. And I think it becomes more pronounced as things get more choppy and more difficult to foresee. So, you know, we're in the middle of this bull cycle, late stage bull cycle, late stage economic cycle. Everyone keeps talking about that. And as things go the other way or become more difficult, not just in the markets, but in the industry itself, it is confusing. And so the role of an advisor is more pronounced. And I actually have a line in the letter where I quote the Nobel laureate, uh, Professor Donnie Kahneman, who's a friend of the firm. And I asked him once, what's your definition of a good advisor? And he says, a good advisor is someone that has your best interest in mind, but doesn't care about your feelings. (laughs) And of course, that goes contrary to my scale intimacy concept. We're really trying to care about people's feelings as well, but really not. Really, we're trying to be loyal to the solutions. That is selfless. That is advising companies on how they can create value. But in other products, that same principle should apply. So I'm very focused right now on the market cycle and advising institutional investors, which is the IIM business, institutional investor membership business that you help run. And as part of that, there's an IPO advisory component. So as companies bring their companies public, wow, what a tender exercise that is of going from the private markets to the public markets. It's a whole new world. So, of course, you'd want an advisor there. But it's not just an advisor in the M&A mergers construct. It's an advisor in how to be chaperoned into a new world. If I were a private company, I would want to pick my investors as closely as I pick my board of directors 
it's the same exercise. You want to make sure that investors are with you from day one and have a long-term focus with you. And so I'd be very careful about that process, and I would want an advisor. And we should pick our spots of who we can help most effectively. And we have in the past, and I think we will enhance and build that product even more in 2019. That's my hope for you, Leslie. But I think we have other products that we have that taking advantage of market cycles like this Light Tree product, which is a product that I've talked about before in the Moody's podcast about how we can help founders look at solutions to finance themselves that are less dilutive than raising additional equity, especially additional equity at potentially down rounds. This is a piece of mezzanine lending or debt with, in some cases, a warrant that is less dilutive than equity capital. And in a lot of cases, will be the first debt in a capital structure for a growth technology company. We are lending at up to $100 million per company, not competing with the big banks, but trying to find a solution. I think that is picking up a lot of steam here, given the market dislocation. And I also think we should have more skin in the game, so to speak. We should be building with our clients. That's the merchant bank. We should be investing with our clients. And we should be even, in some cases, dictating the portfolio around those investments. So we like sports at the earlier stages. We've invested in companies like Fubo and The Athletic and Ripken Baseball and youth and uh, education and sports all coming together. We like that area. We also like areas like fintech more and more. So we've been making some investments in fintech. And so in some cases, we'll make investments as a precursor to advising a company and we'll advise them as they get larger and more impactful at, at scale. In other cases, we'll make investments in collaboration with our advisory practice. But to me, that's all about the same exercise, which is connecting ideas to capital and playing a small, minor role in it in collaboration with our friends, our partners, our clients. And that is a similar dynamic depending on the product we're in or across all the products. At the beginning, it starts with some critical thinking, some thematic approaches, and advising properly. Trusted advisor across all areas. Correct. So let's shift to markets and macro. We've, as you noted, obviously had a very choppy market backdrop this year with volatility up almost 2x from last year. Bond yields have gone up, but the economy, at least so far, has posted solid growth. You had a very interesting analogy in your year-end letter comparing and contrasting the macroeconomic environment today versus that in the 1980s, which at the time led to the stock market crash in 1987. Could you walk through that analogy And with that in mind, if you had to peg a probability for an economic recession over the next 12 to 18 months, what would it be? Before I jump into the conventional pool of doom and gloom, because I'm an optimist by nature, although with some healthy cynicism along the way, (laughs) I would say there are a lot of positive things going on in the underlying economy. There's growth the new world order of economic alliances between countries are getting reworked in a beneficial way, in my view. There's more of an awareness of the complexities of globalization and potentially a boon associated with global businesses and a global outlook, in my mind. We still have relatively low interest rates by historical standards, and we have a relatively healthy consumer still. And companies are imminently financeable, the M&A markets are still strong because companies will be willing to use their currencies to create synergistic value-creating transactions. And we're seeing that all the time. We have a strong pipeline for 2019, thankfully, at this point in the year. But there are a lot of warning signs also. And it's not just warning signs based on what the markets are doing. There are fundamental warning signs. I talk about inflation creeping up. I talk about 
the interest rates now rising, which affects the corporate bond and government bond markets, and potentially signs of distress out there even in capital structures. And, well, and you the have bond an market. interesting perspective given your high yield background, you know, as an analyst in high yield for many years. Yeah, I appreciate it. But I think it's a holistic approach, right? Like corporate finance, we get too caught up in the analysis. You in the markets live in the real world. So any pristine forward looking analysis has to get checked with what's really going on in the world. And then we have to make our own view of where things are going, because ultimately we're here to tell the future and then prepare for it. But there are some funky things going on in the market right now. I'll tell you, it's a strange moment. For example, for a lot of our hedge fund clients out there or hedge funds in general, it is a difficult period. In fact, most trading in the marketplace today that goes on are either ETFs, index-driven funds, or short-term traders. There are very few long-term investors or long-term investors in the public markets are a minority. In fact, probably the best place to do long-term investing is in the private markets for private companies or to take public companies private to do it. But long-term trading is not really, long-term investing is not really present in the capital markets right now in the public side. So the public markets that we're looking at every day are very short-term oriented and therefore not necessarily fundamentally sound. That's a disconnect, huge disconnect. The other thing is the foreign buying of our government debt has been decreasing significantly in the last few years. I have to believe that's related to China, who was a big buyer of our U.S. treasuries. And if they're no longer buying our government securities, but someone else has to pick up that slack. And where does that come from? And how does that relate to the interest rates rising and the Fed trying to make our securities more attractive to other buyers? So it goes back to what's happening with trade in China, which is a big fulcrum factor for 2019 in a lot of ways, not just for businesses, but for the markets. And a lot of it goes to our long-term investors, mutual funds, sovereign wealth funds, people that get paid for performance over a very long period of time that are based on fundamentals and valuations, which we now have to look at in a more grounded way. And a lot of that has to do with kind of just the market cycles with the economy overall. We're well into a bull cycle. And then there's obviously the bond market and, and leverage that I referenced in the letter. So all these things are kind of coming into a recipe of a stew, which is not clear how it's going to taste yet. It's not clear how it's going to come out. And I think that will be volatile, but I think there's a risk of being overly negative I don't personally predict a recession, but I do think we're moving from a hope and dreams-driven momentum marketplace to one that's more fundamental and grounded and has to be focused on valuations, specifically cash flow-based valuations. Right, sort of more of a back-to-basics theme as it relates to analysis and valuation for companies. Yeah, that doesn't bother me. I mean, I think it's just you have to be aware of that and then look for opportunities. I just personally think the public markets are a difficult place to get a good read on it right now. It's easier in the private markets, but the public markets will find its home. And I think that that will be based on valuations. Even the the PE ratio at the beginning of 2018 for the S&P 500, I think was 20 times, well above historical norms. I think as ending 2018 was closer to 15 times, which was pretty much right on the average. So we maybe just be getting down to like, a correction that's already in process, but we've started to see it already. And I tell investors the best buying is buying on the way up, not buying on the way down. You have to wait for things to settle a little bit before you start to dip your toe in the water. Right. People aren't usually successful buying on the way down. Now in our business, you know, we advise companies as well as investors. So companies that have healthy currencies or equities should be using those currencies to create value 
in mergers and acquisitions, whether that could be defensive in nature by having cost savings or offensive in nature by creating growth opportunities. We're a big advocate of that, not just because that's what we do for a living, but I think it's the right time in the cycle to still strategically realign these companies with financial benefits. Similarly, companies with healthy capital structures that are locked into rates that were existing in 2018 or 17 or 16 or beyond before that, keep them in place. That's good capital, low interest rate capital, lock them in, right? Leave that there. Use excess capital to make investments, to prepare for future growth opportunities, to play through the cycle. I'm not so sure that companies will be using their capital as much to buy back stock and support stocks. I don't think they're going to do the work for the public markets right now because they should use that dry powder either to protect against this quote-unquote recession, rainy day. I would want to preserve some of that capital. I don't know exactly where things are going right now. Or I want to use that capital to build things and to grow things. Simply to capture value from the stock market overall, that will happen here and there. But I think by and large, there are better uses of capital. Mm -hmm. The other thing about the capital markets, and we've referenced this in the letter and also in one of the previous podcasts, I think specifically around Moody's, to note is that the depth of the bond market, specifically the below investment grade, high yield bond market, is going to be tested here because it's not as deep as people think. If that level of issuance or appetite as a safety net dries up or continues to be more fickle, that will be a warning sign for the markets. And I think actually December of 2018, this last month, was the first month when there was no high-yield bond issuance at all since 2008. So that is a warning sign. The markets open up at the beginning of the year. You look for defensible names. The cable industry always does well in the bond markets when it opens up again. If the high bond issuance starts to dry up, that's a warning sign. And corporate bond market, I think, is something that has to be watched as an indicator here. Politics has been so intertwined with media over the last year. As we look ahead, how do you see politics and regulation, for that matter, impacting the markets in the TMT sector? It's hard to see like politics as a real fundamental factor in and of itself. I'm a student of capital structures and future performance of companies and when I look macro, I think macro for the industry, because that's what we're focusing on. It would be arrogant for me to start to lead people down a path of following our advice as a firm beyond the media, technology, telecom industries, because that's what we're focusing on. So I think when you ask me that question, it's more about my personal observations than anything as it relates to how we should be advising our clients. Our clients should be advised based on the company fundamentals and thematics that we're aware of. But no question as it relates to the industry we're focusing on, regulation, of technology companies is a big theme. I personally view a lot of the technology industry issues as being self-inflicted. That can be self-corrected in the way they govern themselves and the way they operate and structure themselves. It'll be hard to show how the government can fix it for them. And that's, therefore, I think regulation, while it'll be part of the discussion for 19, I don't think we'll see anything tangible in terms of regulation in the tech industry in 19. I think it'll be slow to come to fruition is what I say in the letter. And that's what I believe. But it'll be out there as an overhang, and the pressure will mount on the technology companies to make those self-corrections. There are regional dynamics going on where it goes into trade and political factors that relate to the economy. Like I mentioned, China trade with the U.S. I also think Latin America will be a big area of opportunity in 2019. You know, we like Mexico as well. We like Argentina. 
We like uh, Colombia, Peru, Chile. So there are areas in Latin America that we're focusing on and others that I haven't mentioned that are interesting. We also think that while China is in a kind of holding pattern, so to speak, India is an interesting area still. We're obviously very focused on Europe on both the uh, advisory side as well as the emerging banking side. We own some assets in Europe or partially own some assets in Europe. And that is going through a tremendous political cycle upheaval with Brexit. Depending on when people listen to this podcast through January of 2019 or beyond, it's unclear what's going to happen there. But there's a chance that Brexit doesn't happen and it still stays part of the EU. There's also a chance that it breaks, but it's unclear about what the consequences of those are still from an advertising perspective and also a currency perspective. That being said, industry fundamentals and company fundamentals should probably play through over time there. And the last region we think about, it's less to do with politics, but more geographically, is space. You wrote about it in one of your last pieces for the Weekly in 2018. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic had a successful launch to space to close the year. We think that's an interesting area. There are revenue-driven businesses in space right now, both commercially and for the consumer. And I think you'll see in 2019 and 20, consumer travel to space. Who knows? That's an interesting area to watch. We're pretty focused on that. So while we're talking about being grounded in fundamentals and valuation, we do that in order to also look at some of these exceptions to that rule, which are the opposite of being grounded, which is to get into space. Politics overall is noisy, really noisy. Like if I asked you, could you tell me what the political news of the day was two weeks ago, you would be hard-pressed to remember what that is because... It's so focused with intensity on today, maybe yesterday, but within a week, that'll be old news because the cycle goes so fast. So is that really a fundamental factor or is that just like a provocateur of the media a little bit? I think that politics in substance will not be as relevant as it has been the last few years. You, know, you have a you know, split Congress now, right? With the parties, you're going to have a lot of people putting their name in the ring in 2019, especially in the first half of 2019 to run for president in 2020. It'll be good theater, and some of that will be interesting to watch for new fundamental positions and new areas of focus, which I think will be very healthy and very pro our process. But from an economic perspective, I think that'll get disjointed a bit from what's actually going on fundamentally in the economy. Right. And how all this relates to M&A, to tie back to that, this time last year, we were talking about robust corporate cash reserves, record levels of dry powder within the private equity firms, U.S. tax reform, all of that creating a significant fuel for M&A. And we did see record levels of activity in 2018 driven by some mega deals. But what is your outlook for M&A now into 2019? When you run a firm that has a large focus on M&A and M&A advice, mergers and acquisition advice, the worry is that the cycle is going to change and M&A is going to dry up and therefore we're going to have nothing to do. <laughs> I personally haven't had a slow day in my life. Knowing you, I know that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is I think there's always something to do around advising companies, particularly as things get more difficult, not easier. And But then if you just look at it in a more focused way for the industry that we're dealing with, it's just, you know, media and technology, I mean, the same factors that led to M&A consolidation in 2018 still exist today. The need for scale, which is all about cost efficiencies and growth opportunities, and frankly, some protection, defense as well as offense. A global diversified model, not just a regional focus, given the regulatory and other business challenges we talked about before. And also the fact that these businesses are in transition. And they're in transition in a lot of ways from a B2B model to a B2C model, direct-to-consumer. So when you're direct-to-consumer oriented, 
your user base has completely shifted and the patterns of your users and consumerism are shifting all the time, plus the demographics are shifting. So the way that you invest for those business models is different from the way you invested from an affiliate-based business model. And then the advertising industry is changing and all the middlemen around the ecosystem are getting squeezed to the end user, which is something that we highlighted a few years ago, which I think is continuing. So the M&A environment for media and technology if anything, is getting more interesting and our pipeline is growing, not shrinking. And then you couple that with the fact that there could be some areas of deconsolidation. So mergers that have been done before that frankly are hard to digest or hard to execute or hard to manage through may in some ways get unwound. I don't mean to paint a picture of like heads we win, tails we win at Lion Tree, but I think if we are curious and creative and kind of tipping our hat to the fundamental backdrop of what's going on here, then M&A deals in this kind of financing environment, even though it's choppy, will persist for a while. And I expect a strong year ahead for 2019. Are there any particular TMT assets that you think will be most sought after in 2019? What's most scarce? Well, I have a comment that I uh, did not coin that actually comes from Daniel Eck at Spotify, which is that the ear is undervalued versus the eye. And that means that you know valuations around video businesses, which are still in need of consolidation, but valuations around video businesses are approximately 10 times the values of audio businesses. So the question is, do you use your eyes 10 times more than you use your ears? <laughs> so should there be a reconciliation or an equilibrium there? And that's a, like a nice catchy way to say that audio-based businesses, podcasting, even radio, streaming, audiobooks, et cetera, have areas of opportunity and are sought after. And I think you'll see transactions around those things. We've already been doing some of them in the music business. I think you'll see more in areas of podcasting and other areas of audio. And we're bullish on that, and we're playing into that. We talked about esports. Esports has been developed over the last two years, but I think we haven't seen as many transactions. And I think you're going to start seeing more transactions around that. And I think you'll see other consolidation approaches. There are many ways to skin the cat, right? There are many ways to get to value creation. And the nice thing about our jobs is it's not... You know, one transaction looks like the other and every day is different. And I think you'll see a lot more variety, even in the kind of many transactions that we're going to do in 2019. But ultimately, it's about offensively aligning the businesses for growth and defensibility of the asset mix, meaning that mergers should not just be about cost savings for businesses that are stagnant. Mergers ideally should be about preparing a company's asset portfolio for enhanced growth opportunities while generating cash flow. And so I think that when you can future-proof the businesses based on M&A, that's the panacea. And we're always trying to figure that out. So the other part of the media industry that I think is very attractive is gaming. Gaming is an area that we've been increasingly focusing on. We actually made some hires. One of our bankers, Nick Tuastu, we're lucky to have him come on board this year in our San Francisco office. Or last year, he joined for the first time. And um, he is focused on interactive entertainment with a specialty of gaming. And we like gaming on a global scale, both the established players, the console players, the content providers, and mobile gaming as well. So we're big fans of the gaming industry overall. I think we'll even see some IPOs in the gaming industry in 2019 as well. That area is a way that we think can be viewed as not only content models, but also distribution models because the user base of a global gaming company is powerful and probably matches the reach of companies like Netflix even. 
So Ari, you had made reference to direct-to-consumer. And in your letter, you talk about how 2019 is going to be a pivotal year for the market structure of direct-to-consumer. So how impactful do you see the new launches and most notably Disney's new product coming to the current competitive framework? Well, direct-to-consumer, we always use these great terms, but I think my hope is that people listening to this podcast really want to know about what's happening in the industry, even from a layman's perspective, meaning that what direct-to-consumer is, is when you receive your video, you used to receive it solely through an ecosystem like the cable ecosystem, where you had the channels like Discovery, ESPN, CNBC, et cetera, delivered by your cable provider, your satellite provider, Dish, DirecTV, Comcast, Spectrum, et cetera, Altice. Direct-to-consumer means you also have services provided to you directly that you can subscribe to, like a Netflix, or a Roku, or an Amazon Prime, or a Hulu, and the list goes on and on. There's even Spotify, which is more audio, but could be more video in the future, or services like HBO or CBS All Access. Now, one of the trivia questions is that there are only four direct-to-consumer offerings of 70 in the U.S. today that reach over 25% of the U.S. subscriber base or consumer base. You staggering, know, yeah. Staggering. Can you name the four? Can you name the four, Leslie? Netflix, Amazon. Hulu. Yep, Hulu. And YouTube, right? YouTube, of course, right. yeah. So those are the four. There's a room for more. And most of the difference between the four and the 70 are individual channels' own direct-to-consumer platform, whether that's a CBS All Access or others like that. And so to get really scale... Otherwise, you're giving the consumers, I think, too many options and it gets a little confusing versus the old ecosystem. Which ones will emerge as other scale providers? Obviously, we like, there's companies like Pluto uh, out there that we've had early investments in. But then there's what Disney's doing with new Disney flicks, right? And then also they're going to do the same thing or they have with ESPN on their own, right? And they'll have Hulu as well, or the majority of Hulu. They have what Warner Media is going to do under AT&T's umbrella with HBO, Warner Brothers, and Turner is creating a direct-to-consumer umbrella platform. You have what Jeffrey Katzenberg and Matt Whitman are doing with short-form content that's called Quibi, right? So you have new ones emerging all of a sudden, and many more, by the way, many more than I've mentioned, and we have a list of all of them if anyone wants to look through each one, and I'm sure people have a lot of loyalty to certain brands and certain user experiences. But when you get to that level of offerings by these different providers, then you're wondering like what the differentiation is between one or the other. So why do you use Netflix or Amazon, one versus the other? What's the engagement level of one versus the other? How much time does the user spend on one versus the other? What differentiates the experience? So then over time it becomes, okay, well, I want unique experiences on each platform or I'm going to subscribe to all of them. If I subscribe to all of them, then how much pricing power do these companies really have over the long term? So I think this is the year of establishing differentiation for direct-to-consumer. Disney has a clear differentiation path, which is they have Disney content. How far will that take them? They have to get users. They're starting without any users. So they have it in Hulu, but they don't have it in this new Disney platform. So they have to get users, and they're betting on the fact that Disney unique content will get them differentiated and a scaled user base. Sounds logical, but it's a competitive environment now. And it reminds me of the days of cable distribution. So TCI, Cablevision, the cable companies. If you go back to when you and I were working together on the trade desk at UBS, each one of those cable companies had their own cable channels that they owned. 
Cable Vision owned AMC. Discovery was owned by the TCI Malone family, Malone set of family shareholders, and so on and so on. So that meant that everyone had their own content that was differentiated for their platform, and they sold that same content to others as well, but the price differences may have been relevant and a point of tension or opportunity, right? So I feel like we're getting into that mode where every platform has a bit of their own content. Amazon may be getting deeper into sports ownership, YouTube as well. And so how will each platform get defined by the content that they own to attract consumers and better price elasticity over time? Otherwise, it's going to get very saturated and difficult to sustain growth in my mind. Looking back to that analogy of the cable TV sector, what lessons learned then came from that transition? Well, I think there's cycles. There are points of maturity and less mature businesses in its evolution. So at the beginning of a business cycle, let's say for a cable channel, you know, it used to be, I mean, not to make this too much, I'm like an old man here or something like that, but like it used to be that we had broadcast channels, right? It's CBS, NBC, Fox. All of those channels were governed by an economic structure called the advertising model, right? Which was based on how many users you could generate and how many people would watch a show and you'd sell advertising against that show at a certain moment in time. And then you said, okay, well, cable came in and cable channels were created and cable channels were created, but with mass genres, sports, ESPN, you know, news, CNN, business, CNBC, and mass genres that was able to both get paid on subscription, which is affiliate fees from the cable operators, and also advertising as well. And then they reached a point where it's the John Malone 500 channel universe. And it's not just mass genres, it's niche genres. So, you know, like who wants to watch badminton on Tuesday afternoons channel? <laughs> not anything wrong with that, but that's a narrower audience. So that narrow audience will be just subscription, right? You're no longer talking about a mass audience thing. Right? You're talking about a niche audience that really cares. So that subscription at a higher price point for a niche audience, right? So over time, the cable channels itself had a relatively defined model and they weren't necessarily at this point arguing for more affiliate subscription dollars from the cable operators anymore, the same growth rates they were in the past, at least, maybe it even declines in some cases. So now the programming has to generate an audience again with advertising, which is also challenging. So now they go direct to consumer. Along that cycle, you needed a sort of big platform to kind of get that content out there. So I always say who wins, content or distribution? It's both. You need the tension between the two. Sometimes it's 50-50, sometimes it's 80-20, sometimes it's 90-10. But you do need the tension of content distribution in one place to create maximum value. One or the other itself is just a very discreet bet. And I think right now, in a direct-to-consumer environment, you're going to start needing both. In the last few years, you just needed the distribution because you paid for content and you were diversifying your content offering. Netflix, you know, most of that content on Netflix is very holistic, diversified content, very little that you would say, I go to Netflix because of only this show. And I think Disney is going to help push this. You need to have your own content to boost your distribution and vice versa. That is a sign of a cycle maturing, not all the way to maturity, but we're half the growth phase now. I think that investors and market participants in a effort to be the first to predict the future of something makes pronouncements that are wrong, but are contrarian enough to draw attention to itself. And then it creates a lot of worry. And by the way, it's healthy because it makes people focus on, well, what's the fundamental equation for that? What's the backdrop? What's the analysis of it? So for example, when cable first came out, the broadcast is dead. 
you know, when uh, direct-to-consumer comes out, it says, you know, the cable businesses are over. In reality, you have to be prepared to live with attention for a while. It's not a black and white answer, right? You live in the gray. I personally have learned this over time. When I've covered stocks, I've thought about that a lot. When you advise companies, you cannot turn your back on the economic ballast that exists just because you want to focus on the new, new thing. There is a tension between those two things that is important. And by the way, that could be exacerbated by market activities. It may not show up in the fundamentals and it could still drive the market down or up significantly. But that's all because people are trying to figure out the future earnings stream, which is the job of the stock market. But while you're trying to figure it out, it creates a lot of uh, oscillation or volatility, right? right? And so that's okay. But then at some point, the truth will lie in who actually can figure out where it fits in the spectrum and when. And that's going to happen. I think right now what you're dealing with in the video ecosystem is volatility about where it ends up. It doesn't mean that the existing models are dead or dying tomorrow. It means that we are shifting to an a la carte environment again. We are shifting to a direct-to-consumer environment or well past that shift right now. And then, guess what? The consumer has to figure out what they actually want. And then I don't think we've paid enough attention to that yet. And then this is the next cycle. What does the consumer actually want and what will they pay for? And it won't just be, you know what? Give the consumer direct-to-consumer video because they're all going to keep taking it. We don't know that. There could be more differentiation there. So it's just like analyzing different parts of the cycle at the right moments in time without throwing the baby out with the bathwater either and knowing that that tension is a great place to live in. You don't want to live in the extremes. <laughs> right. And it'll continue to evolve, as you yeah. said. Moving on to another key theme, 2019 is going to be the commercial deployment of 5G. And there's been a lot of debate about how impactful this technology will be to the industry. The cable companies at a recent industry conference downplayed the potential impact that 5G will have on fixed broadband. Do you agree with this or would you be bracing for a greater impact? 5G will be invested in heavily in 2019 and 20. Whether or not that will be successful or not remains to be seen, but I believe that will be uh, successful enough that investment dollars will continue to flow into the next two years. And we will see potentially competitive video models out there in 5G. I don't know enough about the technicals to say whether that will sustain itself over the long term, but I remember when Fios was first launched in fiber to the home from Verizon, there was a lot of analysis done, including for myself, about how that's not going to really work. Long term, the economics of cable are much better and will survive Fios. But it didn't mean that Verizon stopped investing in Fios. It doesn't mean that Verizon hasn't had successes in Fios. They've sold off some of the assets. They've kept some of the assets. They've gotten subscribers, right? So when you have a well-capitalized entity based on real motivations for defensive purposes and offensive purposes like the telecom companies have today, they're going to be putting dollars into 5G. And I think they should to a large extent because they have to find ways to grow. And that will create disruption. Whether it's material disruption next two years, probably not in a fundamental way, but I think capital will be deployed in those areas. And I think we'll have to follow not just the 5G networks and its deployment, but applications of those. Again, I think gaming will be a big potential application of 5G. So the applications of those networks being built, I think, will also be uh, interesting to watch. But I think it'll be a lot of capital intensity by not just the at and the Verizon's of the world, but also some of the Asia and European players that have 5G aspirations, SoftBank, et cetera. 5G, though, does open up possibilities even while we are still testing its ultimate viability as a network and strategy. I think it will have a lot of momentum during the next two years. And the applications off of that 5G program will also get a buoyancy 
to them, applications like gaming, but also underlying content strategies. So I think the content industry will get excited about 5G as a distribution platform for its content, particularly you know new ways of thinking about content, unscripted and scripted. And I think you'll see a lot of partnerships between uh, the 5G players and the content companies, not necessarily M&A. This is partnership related. And, and even Verizon, who has been relatively quiet on the media side, may use its 5G investments to be a lot more friendly and collaborative with the content industry on a commercial basis, which I think would be interesting, not just with uh, underlying content companies, but also gaming companies and the like. I wanted to ask you about Media 2.0. We spent a lot of time internally talking about Media 2.0, but for our audience, could you define first what Media 2.0 is in your mind? Media 2.0 to me means while we're doing or engaged in merger activity for scale benefits, it does not mean that the media industry is ending with these transactions and that there aren't exciting new media businesses being created, A, or transitioned from other businesses, B or C, being more integral to other traditional industries that people don't think of as media. So, for example, starting with the last one, politics. Politics and media starts to look very closely aligned these days. You know, what's the difference? You aggregate your audience, you find your voice and your message, and you try to monetize it. Some monetize it in votes, others monetize it in advertising dollars. But feels a lot like politics and media are very closely intertwined these days, right? That's a media 2.0 approach. But other things are like, Media business models, working backwards in my analogy, media business models are being created that are engaging an audience today, and sometimes in a provocative way. Let's say like Barstool Sports is a media 2.0 company that's run by a terrific executive named Erica Nardini, and it's owned by the Churning Group. They've grown tremendously by kind of picking up an intense audience of male-dominated users that is kind of engaging at a very high level. And now they've picked up women as well in a provocative way as well. And so I think you're seeing Media 2.0, social strategies, podcasting strategies, and other businesses being created that are growth drivers that make media not a thing of the past, but a thing of the future, a growth driver. And I like those businesses, and that's the future media strategies. And then there are things like esports and gaming and other areas of media that also are growth areas that are newly created. So all media is, and I've said this before, is, um, to quote Steve Jobs, the distribution of content over a technology or the dissemination of content over technology. So that technology used to be newspapers. Now it's Spotify, right? But it's still just a technology. And the content is more varied now than it used to be, right? And all forms of content are allowed. Now, it does bring up regulatory considerations and the impetus from these companies to actually really govern what kind of content they're putting out there, which I think is not meant to sound old school, like the regulation of content is something that should be dismissed. Cause I think that's really important. What someone says on CBS or NBC is regulated by the FCC, but someone could put hate speech on a social media platform. And, and that's not the government's responsibility. It's the company's responsibility to govern that. The first amendment is a government responsibility to allow for First Amendment free speech. But the companies don't have to allow everything to happen on their platforms. They can regulate that. That's their job. That's their choice. And I think we should have more of that. And we are starting to. And I think the last part of Media 2.0 are like what these new media models look like in transition. So when you have discovery, you're trying to change that business model by creating a unscripted mega platform of IP that can extend into other 
forms of distribution over the time. When you look at AT&T, Time Warner, that's trying to create a new media company with a mobile platform. So we're going to have to judge these companies on the successes of Media 2.0 and a merge construct. Media 2.0 to me is all about the new business models being created and developed, which we're tracking at the ground level up and hope that we'll have an industry to focus on and thrive with for many decades to come. You mentioned uh, Live Nation under Michael Rapino as a perfect example of Media 2.0. Yeah. So I I like experience-based models, personally, Um, events-based businesses, festivals. Technology is important, and I think we have overweighted our love of the technology industry and clouds and things that are supposed to be, over time, be kind of behind the scenes. Satya, who uh, runs Microsoft, says the best technology are the ones that kind of recede into the background. And the experience are the ones that shine for. That's pretty wise for my software-based company to talk about. And Microsoft's been consistently valuable over decades. Now is the most valuable, if not among the most valuable, because it changes day-to-day, companies on our planet, many years after its formation. That's a very important lesson to understand. So what I like about Live Nation and Michael Rapino is these are experience-based models. So there's a lot of technology in these companies. But what you experience is the media, is the interaction, is the energy that I think can be captured in business models, whether it's uh, concerts or videos or hospitality or other areas. And those experiences have defined businesses to it that have long-lasting memories as well. And it's not just based on technology for the sake of technology. Technology in a lot of ways is an enabler and a transition period, but it shouldn't always be the be-all end-all. It allows you to create things faster and in a more exciting way and for society even. But ultimately, you have to go back to the basic tenets of life. Right. I think we're starting to run out of time, but I have two more quick questions. One, if you had to give one piece of advice right now to a company in the media sector, what would it be? Stay well capitalized, stay nimble. Pivot as often as you must. My second question. You have a very long reading list, book list, that covers a wide range of topics, but are there one or two that would be must, must reads if you had to start somewhere? I've learned how to innovate in the way that I consume media. So when you say reading list, I've started to use audiobooks, mostly because I can multitask, even go on vacation. You know, I used to say, like, you're sitting on a beach and your head's in your book. Yeah, you're reading, but you're missing this beautiful view out there. So if you can put your headphones on, and listen to a book while you're gazing into the horizon. That's a great way to multitask and see all the beauty around you while you're using your ears and your eyes. When I have a long list of books, it's also because I figured out a way using audiobooks to take on multiple quote-unquote readings at the same time. So I kind of go from one to the other depending on how I feel on a given day, and I go back and forth. I like all the books I mentioned. By the way, there are more books that I could have put on there. But I definitely like, if I had to highlight a few, like Measure What Matters is interesting as an audiobook because you actually get to hear the people that wrote certain chapters like Larry Page, et cetera, talk through their experiences. And like the podcast, it's a very intimate experience. So Measure What Matters is all about kind of um, figuring out the derivative effect of taking a vision into the, a practical approach of measuring the milestones and how you achieve that vision. It speaks to me a lot as a business builder. The Square and the Tower is interesting by Niall Ferguson. The Square refers to the social networks and you know the people, the populace connecting with each other to create value and create connectivity. And sometimes it doesn't. 
and the tower refers to corporate hierarchy and political structures and which one has more power, what's that tension look like? And at different moments in time, where we have, have we overemphasized social networks versus corporate hierarchy when you actually need some hierarchy sometimes and vice versa. And I, I like that approach a lot. You know, they're all interesting. It's hard like to think about, you know, like one that's fun is B for Bitcoin by Sam Lesson. Uh, we actually took part in that book to endorse it, but Bitcoin seems like an old school term now, but uh, it is a fun children's book about Bitcoins. There are others on there. You know that the firm kind of Bible is this leadership and self-deception book that I put it on the list again. It's just about self-awareness. When I say we're a work in progress, it means truly that I'm a work in progress and I'm trying to be better banker, advisor, person, CEO, business builder. And I think if you're not aware of the need to make these alterations and changes, then um, you know, you're just locked in, in reverse. And I think the, the new executive has to be one that's making these adjustments for the benefit of the people that he or she is leading uh, in order to really support the firm, not the other way around. I've had many chapters of my life and my year where I've made adjustments, and I feel like I'm going to have to continue to do that, and I hope everyone else at the firm continues to read that book. The best is yet to come. I feel like we're now at a place as a firm where we can hopefully kind of walk briskly and take advantage of opportunities around us versus having to sprint all the time. Because I think a little bit of a slow and steady growth curve will be helpful for not missing anything, especially as the market gets more difficult and continues to get more choppy and confusing. You know, I hope that we are um, going to lean on each other, all of us and all of the people in the firm and all the people with our clients to find uh, the opportunities through the next cycle and not rely on something that's already uh, well past maturity in terms of the last bull market cycle. I want to end by reading a quote at the beginning of your letter, REA, where you referenced that 2019 is 550 years since the death of Leonardo da Vinci, who said, I love those who can smile in trouble, who can gather strength from distress and grow brave by reflection. I think that's a really great way to end. I believe it. He was a wise man. Right. You could be grounded and curious at the same time. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed the chat. Really looking forward to working with you in the year ahead. Likewise, and um, we love the weekly that you put out. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on it. I hope that other people will benefit from your insights. I hope you'll make adjustments to your product mix as you go throughout the year. Yeah, to we make have it more some more we have some ideas. Yeah, <laughs> we had a lot of ideas in the pipeline. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Thanks, Arya. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.